Right, so we go through the uh, impressively large door. So here we are in Magdalen Chapel. Taking a walk with writer Robert Douglas Fairhurst takes longer than it used to. The professor of English literature at Magdalen College, Oxford, was diagnosed with the autoimmune disease multiple sclerosis in 2017. He breezily explains that walking and talking at the same time now involves huge concentration, a little luck, and some essential accessories. I always wear my knee pads these days because the fear of falling over and cracking something open is, uh, is getting stronger. And as I get older, of course, when I crack something open, it would be a lot more serious than it would have been if I did it even three or four years ago. So there's, there, yeah, there, is that, there is always that fear. And if you're wearing them, you don't fall. And that's the great irony. That, <laughs> you know, I said that they are my prophylactic uh, knee pads. So that as soon as I put them on, then I'm, you know, absolutely safe as houses. Robert's memoir, Metamorphosis, A Life in Pieces, pays obvious tribute to Kafka's story of Gregor, who wakes up one morning to find that he's been transformed into a huge insect. And the cover of Robert's book makes a visual joke that metamorphosis begins with an M and ends with an S. But in Robert's story, he seems so phlegmatic about his condition. He looks at himself, his new clumsy walking style, and turns two of the most annoying characteristics into perky, overbearing companions, circumduction and steppage gait. For many people, January is a time to make New Year's resolutions and begin afresh, 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 as Philip Larkin puts it in his poem, The Trees. In my case, it was a time for more of the same. Another hospital, another neurologist, and another battery of tests to check everything from my reflexes and eyesight to how successfully I could walk in a straight line. On this occasion, the neurologist had a couple of medical students sitting in on my assessment, and occasionally he paused to quiz them on what they could deduce from how I presented myself. This meant that all the symptoms I'd previously been only vaguely aware of suddenly acquired an impressive new set of scientific labels. What do you notice about the patient's walking? Circumduction of the left leg? Very good. Anything else? There's some scuffing on the floor caused by his steppage gait. Excellent. It was as if a whole bunch of strangers I'd been sharing my house with had decided to come over and introduce themselves to me. Hi! You remember that little semicircle you make with your left leg whenever you try to move forwards? The crab-like movement that looks as if you're trying to sneak up on the ground ahead of you? That's me, circumduction. Oh, hi. Oh, and don't forget about me. I'm that weird thing you've started doing with your right foot where you slap it down every time you take a step, like you're trying to put out a small fire. My name's Steppagegate. Nice to meet you. And you. I think we're going to get to know each other really well. Yes? Yes. 
That's the remarkable thing about Robert's memoir. He treats his own life as an exercise in literary close reading and textual analysis, where some might see MS as a cruel disease which has robbed him of balance and energy. He sees a literary intervention which has disrupted his style and shuffled his plot. His memoir is a form of life writing in which the subject himself is newly rewritten prose. You make sense out of life by making sentences out of it. You try to construct the fragments of experience, which are often um, messy or mazy, inchoate, into something which has a structure and a direction. And you hope that direction will then turn itself into a purpose uh, or into a meaning. So um, one of the things that we do when we tell ourselves those stories is we have to try and work out what kind of story it is. Um, and most people find themselves living in a kind of picaresque narrative in which is just one thing after another, not necessarily leading anywhere in particular, but just, you know, chapters, sentences, words following one after another. Um, obviously, you hope that that kind of subsequence will then lead to consequence. You hope that you will uh, end up getting somewhere or going somewhere. There will be some kind of uh, conclusion, some kind of destination. What MS does is it messes up your sense of the kind of story that you're in because suddenly your life has kind of kinked or taken an unexpected turning. But it also messes up your ability to piece together the fragments of your life into some kind of coherent story because suddenly your sense of who you were and how you work is split apart. One of the reasons that I've chosen the line from Eliot's The Wasteland as the epigraph of my book, these fragments I've shored against my ruin, is that it's not just that the book itself is composed of fragments. It's the only legitimate and I thought honest way I could offer a reader of what it feels like to be in a situation where your sense of yourself and the kind of life story that you thought you were living out suddenly um, dissipates or becomes a sort of kaleidoscope. Robert's clarity of thinking, his literary self-dissection, extends to the smallest fragment of punctuation. Early in Metamorphosis, Robert finds a stack of stories that he wrote as a teenager. As he re-reads them, he finds a teenage addiction to high drama and to a particular punctuation mark. The ellipsis becomes another way of reading himself as a story. Needless to say, my blood froze, dot, dot, dot. While a poem about a pensioner being left to die, or possibly a horse being slaughtered, if the symbolism isn't altogether clear, ends with the lines, and his cabbaged mind was somehow proud, dot, dot, dot. It would be good to claim that these dot-dot-dots were tactical retreats from language, leaving little openings for my English teacher to involve himself more closely in my gruesome fantasies. The truth is that in each case, the world I'd created for myself was starting to crumble around the edges. Each dot-dot-dot was a warning that my reserves of language were about to run dry. In Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, when the caterpillar asks Alice, Who are you? She doesn't seem quite sure. I, I hardly know, sir, just at present, she replies. At least, 
I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have been changed several times since then. Her confusion is understandable because over the course of her adventures, she's variously mistaken for a housemaid, a serpent, a flower, a volcano, and a monster. She grows as tall as a tree and shrinks as small as a mouse. She reminds us that one person has the potential to be many different things. Alice can change this quickly because she is dreaming. When she thinks she is falling down a rabbit hole at the start of the story, she is really just falling asleep. But already the unpredictability of living with MS meant that I had begun asking myself the same question. Who are you? I thought, as I stumbled physically while getting out of bed or stumbled over my words when trying to explain something to a student. Back came the answer. Dot, dot, dot. Life punctuated, life punctured. As you can tell, Robert loves Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan. He's published books about both. Literary characters, poetry, novels, all bring him solace, MS or not. The word you use, solace, I think is an important one. The other word I would use is company. That um, illness, um, as anyone who has been ill will know, can feel a very strange and estranging experience. Uh, it can feel isolating, even if you have then discovered you have found yourself in a different community than the one you might have expected to. And in my case, it's a whole network of uh, people uh, with, with MS. Um, despite that, because you are suddenly a, a stranger to yourself, what you then are likely to want is to find some kind of echoes, resemblances, models, um, not for how to behave, but how to understand what you're going through. Um, and given, as I said, your own experience of yourself becomes so fragmentary, so kind of dispersed, so inchoate, reading other people's experiences where they have managed to assemble those experiences into meaningful and coherent writing on the page is always going to be helpful. I was worried for you though because I could see of the writers that you'd chosen the solace was unlikely to come. I mean you talk about Heinrich Heine, the 19th century German poet. The way that he suffered and the way that he declined I almost wish that you didn't know. You described the fact that he even had to use his hands to actually open his eyelids because his eyelids wouldn't obey. Yes, and he describes himself um, as feeling as if he was chained to his own corpse as well. It, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, and yet solace is the word I would use, not because um, I was looking for people who would give me um, comfort in the sense of a, a solution to the problems uh, or some kind of um, conviction that I was going to be cured. It wasn't that at all. In the same way we might go to see a tragedy, not because we think it's going to have a happy ending, but because we know it's not going to have a happy ending and we want to live through that and survive it and con contemplate ourselves in the light of surviving it. 
So if you read a biography of Heine and you read Heine's um, own poems and you learn more about his own deeply miserable life the last 25 years, you realise first of all that he's a brilliant example of someone who can create um, beauty and uh, something of lasting value out of what seems to be uh, capable of doing nothing but destroy um, both his life and even language itself. But also because he's an example of a writer who makes you, first of all, grateful for anything you've got that doesn't involve having to lift your own eyelid up, but also um, he simply makes you more conscious of your own body uh, and of your own kind of feelings uh, and therefore gives you a kind of an external vantage point on uh, what would otherwise just be an internal monologue. One of the books Robert Ree found after his diagnosis was the 1919 memoir, The Journal of a Disappointed Man. It was written by the naturalist Bruce Cummings under the pseudonym of W.N.P. Barbellion. Robert found it on one of the many shelves in his Magdalen College study. Incidentally, even his room looks fictionalised. It's how you design an Oxford professor's study for a stage set. A view of the quad, soft lamps, a large serious desk portraits, miles of books, an elegant sofa that's just crumpled enough to have academic credibility. I was looking for something, something in the bees, uh, and I said I think by, by Barnes or somebody, um, and I came across a different book, and I'm looking for it again now, so, okay, so it's not that one. And it's, here we go, here we go. So, uh, by Barbellion, not Barnes, The Journal of a Disappointed Man. And I was just sort of, I don't know, sort of flicking through it, thinking, hmm, not sure what this is about. Um, and then I looked at the back, and it points out this is somebody who died of multiple sclerosis. I realised this was the book I had to read. Like Robert, Cummings saw books as creatures which had breath and consciousness. This is his entry from the 3rd of October, 1907. I often stand in the centre of the library here and think despairingly how impossible it is ever to become possessed of all the wealth of facts and ideas contained in the books surrounding me on every hand. I pull out one volume from its place and feel as if I were no more than giving one dig with a pick in an enormous quarry. The porter spends his days in the library, keeping strict vigil over this catacomb of books, passing along between the shelves and yet never paying heed to the almost audible susurrus of desire, the desire every book has to be taken down and read, to live, to come into being in somebody's mind. You make a really interesting observation, which is that, that he, he writes a journal journal of a disappointed man and there's something about the form of a journal which seems to be able to cope better with multiple sclerosis in the sense that a, perhaps a, a formal fiction can't. What is it about the fragmentary nature of a journal that somehow suits MS better if I can put it that way? Yeah no it's, it's a very good uh, question that I, I think it's partly the question of um, uh, intimacy for a disease which nobody really understands. So therefore, having a public voice for that disease 
perhaps might seem slightly odd, given that it's such a kind of a, it's experienced inwardly, as of course all diseases are, but it's not really understood externally by anybody else. You know, there simply isn't the information, the public information that allows people to feel that um, a more public voice perhaps would be uh, more appropriate for it. Um, so there's that. Um, there's also, I suppose, the fact that a if you're only entering um, fragmentary entries um, uh, into a journal, it, it produces a kind of sort of kaleidoscopic or crazy paving or kind of shattered mirror kind of effect. Uh, so you're looking at yourself, but not all at once, but as a series of um, kind of momentary kind of snatches of experience. And MS, because it can change so rapidly um, from one day to the next, even from one hour to the next, in fact, journaling is the best way of trying to catch up with your own experiences uh, in in kind of bodily life on, on the page. There's something else that he does which you note in your book, which is that when he gets to the end of his journal, which will be published, he knows it's going to be published, he announces that he has died, although he clearly hasn't, otherwise he wouldn't be able to write it down. And you think that's because he somehow wants to enjoy a period of sort of posthumous life as a way of cheating the MS? Is that what it is? A, a sort of somehow gathering into himself extra time that if he had died he wouldn't have had? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think he's partly influenced by, uh, by Keats, uh, who in one of his last letters uh, refers to his posthumous existence. Posthumous because Keats had reconciled himself to his inevitable death. Uh, and therefore, in some sense, was already living after his knowledge of his own death. So therefore, for Keats, it was posthumous, uh, not that he was dead, but because he'd already reconciled himself to the fact of his death and was living in the aftermath of that. Um, Cummings, I think, similarly. Um, but also, if you think about him as a writer, he wanted the opportunity to have his book published. He felt that nobody would take his book seriously unless it had an ending, the ending being his death. He therefore needed to be dead in order for the book to be published and for it to be taken seriously. And therefore, in a sense, he needed to kill himself off on the page at least, and then enjoy the kind of that strange fantasy we all have of being around for our own funeral and seeing what people say about us. And he could do that by reading his own reviews. And do you know what it was that made you want to write your memoir? I mean, I'm not suggesting that you wanted this kind of posthumous life in any way. And in fact, your book ends in a very different way. Mm. It's a very, very positive ending, which we can talk about in a moment. But what was it that made you want to assemble the thoughts that you had, your understanding of MS, your understanding of life through literature? I suppose two reasons. One, purely selfish. Uh, and the other one, I hope, less selfish. The selfish reason is that because um, MS is something which does shock your body, your mind, your sense of yourself out of all its kind of comforting routines, um, I wanted to sit down and try and reassess who I was, how I'd come to be who I was and where I might go next. And some kind of um, journal-based experience but also an experience based on my life in books seems to be the most honest um, and appropriate way of doing that. 
So that's the selfish reason. The less selfish reason is that MS is one of those diseases which a lot of people know a little bit about or seem to know someone who's got. And yet, nobody really knows much about it and almost nothing's been written about it. Because my story was in some ways typical of that sudden diagnosis, uh, the deterioration, uh, trying to make sense uh, of, of a, a radical change of life. Because in some ways, it was typical, as well, of course, as uh, being kind of odd and weird and <laughs> unexpected. Um, it seemed to me that that might do some good. Is there a sense that it's a guidebook for other people as well, not those with MS, but perhaps with those who were around people with MS? I mean, you describe, for example, your exasperation, that's putting it politely, at those who, in the street, pretend not to have seen you because mm. they find it too awkward to say anything yeah. or those who think there's some form of solidarity by and they're perfectly well and healthy but saying to you oh yes I have I have stiff legs sometimes yes, too that yeah. completely inadequate kind of comment is there a sense in which you actually want to point that out to people as well you know stop doing things like that yeah I, I suppose it, in some ways it is a self-help book um, which I hope isn't only there for myself one of the reasons why I talk about books as much as I do is not just that my own life has been you know, structured and guided and made sense of through books, but also that um, it seems to me that the reading of books can be a way of giving us some kind of, not just insight into other people's otherness, but as I say in the book itself, as a way of sort of slipping on someone else's skin, trying it on for size. And if my book allows other people to do that as it were with me, my skin, uh, even if my skin is, you know, prickly or itchy or not working properly, then yeah, perhaps it allows um, the otherness of a disease like MS to be, to be made sense of. Is there ever a time, do you think, in the writing of the book and since the diagnosis in 2017, when books have let you down, you do note at one point that you're reading two contradictory yet apparently quite similar lines from Tennyson and you just think hang on a minute this is just really not adequate it, it doesn't these words aren't working yeah. you question Larkin as well you know, when he says all books are a load of crap books are a load of crap yes absolutely I mean well yes there have been and yes there still are there absolutely are moments where I think uh, what am I doing frittering my life away at one remove from as it were real life uh, but just by looking at it through a series of borrowed lenses um, wouldn't be better to uh, stick the books on the shelf and again, as I say, at the end of the book, um, borrowing a line from Flaubert uh, and saying, you know, we read in order to live. But the fact that I borrowed the line from Flaubert actually then helps me to realise that even that particular understanding of the world, I needed a book in order to come upon. We're obviously not having this conversation while walking, which is what I normally mm. do, because you weren't sure that walking and talking at the same time went terribly well together for you at the moment. Um, but is there a sense in which the, these books, this, the life of books that, that you've lived in, is a creative world in which you can, at least figuratively speaking, stroll around and take hikes through? Oh, I, I, absolutely. Um, and, and it's easy to be sentimental or maudlin. Um, no pun intended, um, about it. Um, to say that one has, you know, the freedom to to walk, to, to run, to fly, uh, to travel in time, um, to travel in space freely on the page, as I now can't do in real life. But it would also partly be true. 
it would also partly be true. Um, what I'm finding especially interesting is the way in which I'm now rereading books which I understood in one way when I could move around freely and now I can't, they take on a, a rather different life, a rather different meaning. With all these talks of ellipses and literary analysis, you might think the metamorphosis is thin on comedy, but that's not true. Robert decided that he had the energy to walk a little around Maudlin's cloisters. As we walked, we could hear fragments of organ music floating from the chapel. Something that people might not assume would be the case when they pick this book up is that it is really funny. So you're funny, but also your partner, who you name simply M in the book, is shockingly funny. And he's funny in a way which you wouldn't expect to be appropriate in the circumstances. Yes, I mean, shockingly funny is a very good way of putting it. Because I think it will shock quite a lot of people that some of the things that he says and the way he says them... Um, for instance, um, when he saw me lumbering across uh, the living once, uh, he shouted out, Thunderbirds are a go! Just because of my you know, ridiculously kind of stiff-legged kind of walk. Um, and then if I fell over, it would look as if someone had cut one of my strings. So it's absolutely appropriate. Um, he realised very early on that what I needed was not sympathy. I was getting a lot of sympathy. What I needed were jokes because jokes are some of the ways in which we put life into proportion. Um, and a sense of humour and a sense of perspective are more or less the same thing. Uh, and that's what he gave me, that's what he gives me. He, he allows me to look at my situation from the outside, but in a way which is, you know, laced with humour and irony, because that's what allows me to get some kind of purchase on it. Is there a sense in which the book has allowed you to redraw your own narrative in a funny kind of backwards way, in the sense that the text itself is somehow giving you further instruction about what and how to do it next? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question, that, because um, one of the things that a lot of psychologists have started to realise is that you can decide what kind of mood you're going to be in, uh, and then simply by smiling a lot you're likely to be genuinely happier for that day. In the same way that if you get up and uh, you have a kind of miserable outlook, you're likely to be more miserable um, in that day. Um, the book is, I wouldn't say that it's uh, kind of only sunny. I think there are some pretty desperate bits in it, but it is a largely, I hope, optimistic uh, book to read. And interestingly, that didn't only reflect my mood as I was writing it, it reflects the mood I wanted to have having written it. And having written it, I think that I am happier than I was before I started the writing process. So it's not so much that the writing itself was therapeutic as that having written the story and turned those fragments into something that have some semblance of uh, coherence, I can now look back at that experience, make sense of it, and then use that as a sort of springboard for what happens next. You talk about the kingdom of the sick and the kingdom of the well, which is a Susan Sontag uh, idea in, in the book. In the kingdom of the sick, which you're having to inhabit, albeit with a very optimistic outlook and positive outlook, of all the books that, that you revisited since the diagnosis, is there one alone that you would cling to if you could only have one of them? Gosh. 
which of those one books would I cling to? I'm going to fudge it by giving you an answer after first not giving you an answer. So the non-answer is that um, anyone who reads will tell you that it's um, impossible to say, you know, what's your favourite book. Uh, it's the aggregates of the books that allows you to be a better reader. Uh, and it's the aggregate of the books that allows you to use your reading uh, as a whole to see the world in a more interesting way. That's the non-answer. The actual answer is Peter Pan, is the one which I still come back to because now I realise the importance of growing up, of change, even if that change turns out to be unhappy or disabling. Uh, because without it, we aren't people. Metamorphosis has a cast of dented, bruised characters who have changed and who are people. Robert himself, Dickens' fragile child, Tiny Tim from A Christmas Carol, Winnie from Beckett's play Happy Days, buried up to her neck by Act Two, and Robert's great love, Peter Pan. One cannot change certain physical facts of life. What one can change is the, the way one approaches those facts. You seem to have a different approach in a way to Charles Dickens as well after the diagnosis. You say in the book that you tend to read A Christmas Carol every year mm. and then you reread it after the diagnosis and you have a very different idea about Tiny Tim mm. that in real life in fact that it wouldn't have been a hopeful ending to the text at all. He would have suffered terribly in Victorian England. A absolutely and the parallel I draw is with uh, the crippled nutmeg seller, nutmeg greater seller uh, in Henry Mayhew's London Labour and the London Poor, uh, which is published uh, about 10 years after uh, A Christmas Carol, uh, and which describes how this person drags himself around on the street and drags himself um, up and down stairs uh, to his you know, single room where he lives, scrapes uh, the barest living, but if he misses a day or two of work, he starves. Now, of course, it might be that because all stories have a kind of imaginary aftermath to them. You know, we imagine what might happen in the future after that final full stop. Maybe Scrooge does indeed provide for the Cratchit family and provides a private income for Tiny Tim and allows for professional nursing staff to help him. And maybe there is some kind of medical intervention. Maybe there is a miracle. I mean, who knows what happens? But the likelihood is Tiny Tim is not going to have a really happy adult life. Um, and that's something which I, I, I just never thought about uh, until I realised that my own kind of physical future was going to be at best compromised and at worst entirely dependent on other people. You chart in the book the phase where, when you're in hospital having essentially, I'm paraphrasing madly here, but essentially having your stem cells removed so that you can stop attacking your own system because obviously MS is an autoimmune disease. It sounds absolutely horrendous the experience that you have although you you grant the medical staff are wonderful but it's nevertheless a brutal treatment that you receive you read some very strange books in hospital for someone going through <laughs> something so awful I mean Beckett's happy days is not what I pick for example but then when you emerge from hospital finally you turn to E.M. Forster which mm. I found interesting mm. It's popped into my head again because you talked about the conclusions of texts. And there is a sense in, say, for example, A Room with a View, that, that it does end very neatly. 
these people who've been craving their view have a sort of a form of resolution which Forster grants them. But Forster, some years later, wrote this rather strange coda to A Room with a View in which he says, actually, thinking about it, Lucy and George wouldn't necessarily have had the happiest of mm. marriages and George would have really quite enjoyed being unfaithful to Lucy. Mm. So it's, it's a kind of prizing open of a novel which we think of as having a formal conclusion. Is that ultimately, do you think, the only way that literature can properly operate without us questioning it, that it needs to be fully open-ended, as your own text is? Yeah, that's, that's such an interesting question. One of the things that Forster himself says in aspects of the novel is that when you get towards the end of a, a novel, very often all you can hear is hammering and screwing, uh, where the novelist is kind of getting ready to put the last nail in the coffin, uh, at which point, of course, you realise that the story's dead. Uh, what he wanted was to make his stories kind of live on, kind of beyond that full stop, which is when he himself approaches endings, especially in some of his short stories. Um, often he leaves them deliberately, provocatively, playfully open-ended. So, um, for instance, uh, the story of a panic ends with um, uh, Eustace, I think is his name, the boy escaping, and the last uh, phrase is the escaping boy. And we have a full stop, but it's clear the full stop there is supposed to be more like a kind of time tunnel or a, a kind of uh, a squashed up ellipsis. We're, we're, we're expected that to, to assume that something more is going to, uh, to happen. Um, the reason I was drawn to Forster after I came out of hospital was mostly because many of his stories are about what cannot quite be seen, cannot quite be understood, cannot quite be said out loud. And particularly when I was having to remove myself from other people while I was still immunocompromised, and this was before everyone had to remove themselves from everyone, but it was a kind of rehearsal of that, of that time, he manages to find kind of lasting shapes out of a kind of a pleasure in contingency, which is a very posh way of saying, or a ridiculous way of saying, um, he, he, he fixes things on the page in a way that allows us to understand the pleasures of things not being fixed. That's one of the reasons why his stories are full of uh, dashes and blanks and kind of uncertain chapter endings and um, ambiguities and um, plot lines that seem often to kind of tail off and not, not go anywhere. That he, he, he makes his own writing so kind of radically open-ended as if it's structured only by dot, dot, dots. And I suppose that's what I needed. I needed that sense of possibility when I came out of hospital. And with Forster, it's not just at the end of the stories, but it's written into the structure of the stories themselves, that sense of possibility. So what are we to make then of the ending of Metamorphosis? It is open-ended. It is very sunny uplands that you're staring out onto. I mean, it's, it's almost as though you've gone to the beginning of Laurie Lee's As I Walked Out One Summer's Morning. There you are kind of looking out onto a sunny view and there is a sense of possibility and openness. What do you want us to think? I'm not going to tell you, <laughs> precisely because I've, I've, I've tried to shape it in a way which allows it to be seen either as optimistic, the sunny uplands, to borrow a phrase from recent political discourse, um, as something which one can indeed reach, or potentially um, 
it could be read as impossibly romantic, uh, which is why there are allusions in it to Paradise Lost uh, and to Great Expectations and to Laurie Lee and to other writers who realise that, as Proust says, the only paradises we have are those we have lost. Of course, Dickens, with Great Expectations, provided us with one ending, then was persuaded to change it to another ending, and then in separate editions it's another ending altogether. Are you by nature the person that would choose the most optimistic of endings? I would choose an ending that offers up the possibility of optimism, while at the same time recognising that that is only one of the ways in which the future could be shaped. <laughs>